1: Hello, and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. Now, people have different associations with the South American country of Chile. For older listeners, it may conjure up images of the dictator, Augusto Pinochet. For others, it's probably Chilean Merlot, or maybe the odd copper mine. But one thing almost everyone knows is that Chile and its economy are stable in a region full of countries that are not. The violent protests in Chile since October have turned that reputation on its head. Demonstrators demanding a more equal society have clashed with police and the unrest has sometimes tipped over into looting and vandalism. In fact, more than 20 people have died. Hundreds have been wounded and thousands thrown into jail. And there have been plenty of accusations of human rights abuses. So the billionaire president, Sebastián Piñera, was caught off guard in the beginning and fumbled his response. He said that Chile was at war, which enraged the protesters. Then he backtracked and has now promised lots of social projects to bring the demonstrators around. In a minute, I'm going to ask one of Bloomberg's Latin American economists, Felipe Hernández, whether the protests have put Chile's long-term stability at risk and whether they shed light on the challenges facing new governments in Argentina and Brazil. I'm also going to catch up with our trade czar, Brendan Murray, on the latest truce in the US-China trade war. But first, here's Bloomberg's Santiago bureau chief, Eduardo Thompson, on the roots of the economics and social crisis in Chile, and where the country goes from here.
2: To understand Chile, you need to know about Plaza Italia, a wide roundabout that marks the dividing line between the upscale neighborhood of Providencia and the district of Santiago Centro, the home of government offices. Every time the national soccer team wins, crowds gather there to sing and celebrate. It's also a magnet for political protests. In a way, it's a local version of Washington's National Mall, with wide avenues and parks along the border of the Mapocho River. It's also an invisible boundary. De Plaza Italia para arriba, or on up from Plaza Italia, is where the wealthy live in Santiago's northeastern districts. Nunca ha bajado de Plaza Italia, or never gone down past Plaza Italia, means someone who has never seen the real world. And by real world, we mean downtown, where most of the people that feel left behind from Chile's economic progress live. Plaza Italia is the ground zero of the protest in Chile that started in October. Layers and layers of graffiti now cover the statues honoring past wars, while metal or ward barriers surround the area's stores. A few brave shopkeepers have put up paper signs saying they're still open. Many have closed for good. On a sunny and hot Monday, I met with a 24-year-old woman named Tiare Flores. All around, college-age men, their faces covered behind masks, directed traffic and set off fire extinguishers. Women near the main statues were doing a topless feminist performance against sexual violence. Police were nowhere to be seen.
3: Ever since the start, I've been coming here to
4: protest, but I get out if it turns to violence and there's police repression. I'm protesting because of the bad quality of public health and pensions. Pensions are just too low.
2: Tiare should know about this. She works at a private clinic that attends to the rich, those that live uptown from Plaza Italia. This invisible boundary in Plaza Italia also inspired David Vargas to protest. Every Friday, after the 38-year-old technician completes his shift working in the back office of a credit card company in the swanky neighborhood of Nueva Las Condes, he heads out here to join the protests.
3: I came to work Monday at Las Condes after it all began, and that is what angered me the most. The place was packed with soldiers. They were guarding everything when absolutely nothing had happened. But if you went downtown or other places in Santiago, it was pure chaos. They just guarded from Plaza Italia to the rich neighborhoods. Very classist, but... That's how it was. And you can still see that today.
2: Tiare and David are part of Chile's rising middle class. Both have professional degrees. David, for example, comes from a poor family. His father, a former factory worker, collects a monthly disability pension equivalent to about $100. David's mother worked her whole life cleaning houses to put food on the table for him and his family. Mirai! I'm protesting
3: mostly because of the pensions and to emphasize because right now I have privileges that many don't have. I know what it is to live in a poor neighborhood. I know what it is to wait for eight hours at public hospitals for service. I know what it means that the elderly receive extremely low pensions and don't have enough to live or to buy food.
0: A
2: few blocks down from Plaza Italia is where the whole mess started, in a subway station called Universidad de Chile. Early in October, students began to plot massive ticket evasions, first in Universidad de Chile and then in other stations, sparked by a fair increase of 30 pesos or 4 cents. Things got nasty fast. Police special forces clashed with the protesters. Acts of vandalism started and culminated on the night of October 18, when unidentified groups set stations on fire. Protests continued and morphed into the biggest social unrest since the dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet. The message was clear. The neglected lower and middle class in South America's richest country was mad, very mad. Outside of the iconic station in downtown Santiago, I met with Claudio Fuentes, a professor of political science from the Universidad Diego Portales. He has been following social protests for a long time, but the violence of the protests took him by surprise.
3: The people are very, very upset against political parties, against the business community, abusing power. So this is a two-sides um, conflict uh, related to social demands and the abuse of power of the elite.
2: Although at the time of this recording, the intensity of the protests seems to have subsided, the damage to the social fabric of Chile and its once-growing economy is undeniable. The central bank has warned that if the economy doesn't get back on track, unemployment can jump to more than 10%. The peso has had the worst performance of any emerging market currency in the period. Getting out of this will require a lot of spending and a lot of soul-searching around what led the country there. I think that also makes it extremely difficult to handle
3: that this is domestically created. Most of the crises that we have had, Asian crises, the global financial crisis, were external crises.
2: That is José de Gregorio, dean of the Universidad de Chile School of Economics and former governor of Chile's central bank during the financial crisis. He says that though income inequality figures have improved and poverty has fallen, it hasn't been enough. All
3: the, the the new developments and poor people housing was down in the in the periphery of the of the city. We create not ghetto but a very extremely segregated city. So if you are very high income versus if you have middle or low income, you live in different towns.
2: Getting out of this crisis won't be easy for President Piñera. He has promised a 5.5 billion package of social measures, and the country will issue more debt and spend part of its savings. There's also a promise of a new constitution vote next April, but political parties have stalled discussing the details of the process. And for people such as David Vargas, it isn't the solution he wants to see. The most important measure
3: is that the president should resign, because he has shown that he won't bring peace. Neither will political parties. They set up a show and say, we've signed a peace agreement, but they don't see that people are protesting because they don't believe in politicians.
2: That may be seen as too extreme, but political scientist Claudio Fuentes says that a major change is long overdue. Chile
3: need to change forever because the previous uh, let's say, consensus and instability was artificial. It was like a a timing bomb in which we're uh, pressuring for certain issues. And I think that if we don't change the way society is set up, uh, we might have another explosion in 30 years, in 20 years.
2: It's a lesson that other Latin American countries are paying careful attention to. When similar protests began in Colombia, The government of Ivan Duque quickly set up talks with unions and social groups to defuse the tension, while the government of Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil has taken the foot off the gas of its markets reform agenda. It remains to be seen if the reforms in Chile or elsewhere will be enough to avoid another flare-up of the violence. For Bloomberg News, I'm Eduardo Thompson.
1: So I'm I'm joined now by Felipe Hernandez in New York, who covers Mexico, Chile, and a bunch of other countries in Latin America for Bloomberg economics. Felipe, thanks for coming on Stephanomics.
4: Thank you for inviting me, Stephanie.
1: Look, we just listened to that piece from Eduardo, and you know, I guess the question is, does this does this unrest actually put Chile's really long reputation for economic and political stability at risk. I mean, is, this, is that the Chilean economic model, such as it is, is it, is it fundamentally under threat now or are these protests something that are likely to fade?
4: The short answer to your question is that, yes, indeed, uh, all of this unrest has raised some risks for the, uh, for the Chilean economy and uh, the view, the consensus view of uh, stability in Chile. What the policymakers have to understand is that uh, in terms of uh, what changes are required, they must keep in mind or try to make sure that what has been working well for Chile is maintained. Some good examples of this is that they now have a very credible and independent central bank, which has helped to keep a low and stable inflation, responsible uh, and sustainable fiscal policy, And uh, overall conditions uh, that have uh, allowed Chile to enjoy relatively stable and positive economic growth. Now, there were some things that were not working in Chile. When you look at the different indicators, you find that uh, despite all of these things that I mentioned before, there's still high income inequality in Chile. Uh, There were limited uh, redistribution policies and uh, low social mobility, in part due to limited access to high quality education. Any new arrangement that uh, comes out as a result of the of, of these changes must be sustainable in the long term. And by this, I mean that uh, any any fiscal policy measures that result in higher public sector expenditure will have to be offset by uh, the government uh, finding new sources of uh, of revenues. And for the economy as a whole, of course, this probably will imply higher taxes. Any decisions in terms of increasing wages or pensions that could result in higher costs for the, uh, for the uh, productive sector will all have to be carefully weighted against the negative impact that this could have on the competitiveness of Chile. Especially when considering that Chile is a very uh, a highly open economy, and that it is, its its uh, competitiveness relative to the re- to the rest of the world is a key component of uh, the positive growth in the economy.
1: It's not just Chile. I mean, if you look around the region, there's protests bursting out all over. I mean, we've seen in Bolivia, Colombia, Ecuador, uh, Venezuela. Obviously, has been in. Meltdown for quite a while. I noticed that you you took a look um, with Adriana Dupita, who's our Argentina and Brazil economist, at the regional picture on protests and had a think about how one might assess the risk in different countries of of protests breaking out in the future. Can you can you tell us a bit about that?
4: Sure. Uh, so there were. In different countries, different reasons for the protests. But what we saw is that they share a lot of the same problems. So inequality is not a problem only in Chile. It's also a problem in the rest of the region. The need for fiscal tightening measures is not just uh, something that is now uh, at the center of the debate in Ecuador. It's also part of the economic debate in the rest of the region. And the political noise in both Bolivia and Colombia, I think this is just evidence of uh, the problems re- uh, regarding governance that we continue to see, again, not only in these two countries, but in most of Latin America, which basically helps to explain why you have these uh, these uh, episodes of unrest and, and the protests uh, breaking up uh, pretty much at the same time uh, everywhere. Now, all of these problems that I mentioned before, they are really not new, but have recently become more no- uh, noticeable. The main reason for this is that uh, for almost 15 years, between 2000 and 2015, you had very strong growth in the region, and that very strong growth in the region helped to achieve or deliver some progress in terms of of social indicators. That very strong economic growth was was driven mainly by very favorable external conditions, bolstered by strong growth from China, uh, high commodity prices, and a a steady decline in global monetary policy interest rates. As a result of this favorable environment and strong economic growth, governments during this period had a significant amount of resources uh, to expand uh, uh, government programs to aid uh, lower and middle income classes. We saw very successful and uh, broad programs of cash transfers from the public sector to to, to these uh, uh, minorities. And we did saw a significant reduction in the levels of poverty and in some countries, some improvement in in inequality uh, measures. However, uh, over the last five years, the external environment has uh, been less favorable. uh, That has had a negative impact on economic growth in the region. And what we have seen is that in the last five years, this progress in social indicators has pretty much uh, stalled. And in some cases, we have seen some uh, deterioration. So the people uh, in these countries, after 15 years of of progress, they are seeing no progress. In some cases, they are losing some of the progress made. And now that you have a bigger uh, middle-income class, this is uh, uh, people that are uh, getting used to make more demands and want better services and and, uh, better better attention from from the government and and their governors.
1: And when people talk about South America, and particularly people in thinking about the economic side of things, they tend to focus on Argentina and Brazil. You know, they face they face some of the same problems. They have both relatively recently had elections. Do you think there's a risk in either of those countries that even these quite new governments will face the kind of unrest we've seen, particularly maybe in Argentina?
4: Uh, the answer is yes, there's definitely a risk for, for uh, Argentina, Brazil, and I will also say uh, Mexico as well. To be included, and and uh, we cannot rule out that they they could eventually see some uh, some of this unrest as well. The main reason is that, as I mentioned before, are, uh, they pretty much share uh, most of the problems that triggered the protests in in Chile. They also are facing decelerating economic growth. Uh, actually, Mexico now in in recession, and this is something that we uh, looked into the, in the piece that we wrote with Adriana. Is that what I- why have we not seen protests in Argentina, Brazil, and and Mexico, and the main reason, or at least one of, of the explanation that we came up with, is that we recently saw elections in all of these uh, in in these three countries. Uh, the presidents that were elected, or the results of these elections, provided a significant political change from the uh, pro- from the previous government, and in the case of uh, Mexico and Brazil, uh, the Current uh, presidents have been sitting in office for less than a year, so they are relatively new, and they are still like in like a honeymoon period that uh, reduces the amount of pressure that uh, of political or popular pressure that they can come uh, under.
1: Ah, so people think they've successfully voted for something different, and now they're going to wait and see if they get it. Reminds me of somewhere else, not a million miles away from from where I am now. Uh, Felipe Hernandez, thanks very much for joining us.
4: Well, thank you for inviting me.
1: So we just have time for the very latest on the trade wars to keep you happy as you go into the holiday season. Or is there still a trade war? Is it over? You could take a number of views on that on the basis of President Donald Trump's tweets in the last week. Brendan Murray, our long-suffering trade czar, is here. Brendan, what's going on?
5: Well, it, I wouldn't say the trade wars are over, but let's just say both sides called a timeout and agreed to go back to their corners and, and carry on.
1: Both sides being U.S. and China.
5: Exactly. So, uh, what the U.S. announced just a couple of days ago was, uh, was a deal in principle with China that consists of a couple of things. The, the, Beijing has promised to purchase. Some $200 billion worth of American products over the next couple of years, Uh, a lot of that agriculture. And, And President Trump conceded that he would roll back some tariffs. So we've got both sides kind of giving in, but agreeing basically to put off the really tough issues where they couldn't come together. For a later round, a phase two, they're calling this one phase one, and, and the next step where they would address some of the more, uh, the deeper structural issues with China's economy down the road. Now that could be a year from now, could be two years from now, who knows, but it's, it's a pretty safe bet that the, that the trade wars are going to kind of drag on for uh, months, if not years.
1: Well, I was going to say that I would miss talking to you about the trade wars, but I don't think I have to worry about that anytime soon. I mean, we should say about the timing of this that uh, the announcement of the deal came just a couple of days before you would have had that imposition of the next round of of tariffs on China, which actually our economists had pointed out would be much, much more damaging and affect a lot more U.S. companies mm-hmm than the previous tariff. So I guess there was a reason for Donald Trump to come up with something. Um, But just to be clear, there's still going to be a lot of tariffs in place for the foreseeable future. Are there? Any, uh, what are the other question marks about this phase one deal before we even get to the phase two?
5: Absolutely, there's, there still remains a 25 percent tariff on 250 billion dollars worth of Chinese products, and and tariffs on another 130 billion or so. Uh, so we're still looking at you know the U.S. Ex- imposing a fair amount of leverage on China. Um, the the big question then is whether the threat. of of those tariffs is wielded over China going into at the end of phase one and into phase two. Is this is this a threat that just could keep coming up over and over again as they try to uh, work through those tougher issues? So the tariffs that are currently in place. Aren't going anywhere for the foreseeable future, and you know that will continue to put economic pressure uh, on China to you know to come back to the table again and again as if the U.S. Uh, it continues to press press these issues. That's the economic prism that we're looking through. The political prism is. Trump you know heading into his election ne- next November you know wants to deliver the goods for the for the farmers in the Midwest to you know many of them who will vote for him and so there there are economic costs and benefits and political costs and benefits here.
1: Yeah and we've we've talked about in the past that it, it probably if you're president Trump your ideal is uh, something that you can say is more than any other president would have achieved, but not so much that you have to stop complaining about China and you can still bang the drum. So I guess in that sense, it's kind of perfect uh, for him. But it's, I'm, what I'm hearing is that we're not going to get a phase two anytime soon.
5: It's really unlikely, at least the experts that we talk to, to see uh, you know the, these bigger issues that they need to deal with. Um, being hashed out in an election year, being tough on China is does sell well with the American public, both Democrats and Republicans, but the, the Chinese understand the political timetable as well, and so their their strategy has largely been to kind of stall, drag their feet and, and see if you know the political pressure outweighs the economic costs and and leaves Donald Trump trying to focus on these other issues we are speaking today when when he's uh, the house is taking up his impeachment uh you know quite a distraction
1: and we have before you even think about that we do have uh, this other issue and that has been resolved. You know, we should say, if you like, the other the other side of trade wars that was opened up when President Trump came in, which was the renegotiation of NAFTA. Um, that has gone through in the in the same week, or at least we've got agreement with the Democrats on that new deal. You know, I guess the obvious question is, if we've got, if 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 the president would say that NAFTA, the North American trade with Canada and and Mexico that he complained about has been sorted and there's at least a truce on the situation with China. Is Europe next?
5: Uh, according to the U.S. Trade Representative Bob Lightheiser, he's setting his sights on on that big trade imbalance with with the European Union next year. It's uh, you know something that um, you know the uh, President Trump has has complained about a lot. He he calls Europe uh, even worse than China when it comes to dealing with on uh, uh, with uh, the trading relationship. And there are threats on, of of tariffs on auto imports, which, which would hit Germany very hard, France and the UK uh, to a large extent as well. So. The the ever present threat of tariffs uh, pointed at China to date is uh, you know going to be pointed in the direction of Europe next.
1: Coming to shows near you. Well, thank you very much. I'm sure we will be talking about that in the new year. Brenda Murray. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with an extra special Christmas episode featuring yet another Nobel Prize winner in conversation and a particular take on the holiday season from Vietnam. In the meantime, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website, app or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love it if you took the time to rate and review our show. For more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics, follow at Economics on Twitter. You can also find me on at My Stephanomics. The story in this episode was written and reported by Eduardo Thompson with assistance from Maria Jose Campaño. It was edited by Bruce Douglas and produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Special thanks to Felipe Hernandez, Brendan Murray, Rodrigo Ramirez and Solida Saldana. Scott Landman is the executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy.